delightful surprise it was when Carlos, your pastor, called me and uh, invited me to, to fill in for him before you and to uh, enjoy the awesome privilege uh, of opening God's Word and uh, sharing it with you this morning. Uh, as we were singing and, and praying and fellowshipping together this morning, I was uh, reminded of the beginning of Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in you. Now, our time together should be blessing. It should be something that we look forward to with anticipation. Uh, there should be obvious love, uh, affection, regard for one another when we gather together. Uh, and really, if you think about a way, the way a church reaches out and impacts its community. One of the most attractive features of a vibrant, genuine congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, is its love for one another. Uh, the joy that it experiences uh, when the membership of that congregation uh, comes together to worship the true and living God. And I think that's one of the, the lost elements within worship today. The worship wars are notorious. Um, disagreements over what style of worship we should embrace in order to be faithful to scripture and effective in outreach. Uh, what translations we should use in the pulpit. Uh, the, the, the kind of worship setting where we meet you know, if we want to impact our community most efficiently. We should dress. All of these elements are debated endlessly back and forth. And I think, once again, it's a, a prime example of misadventures, of misadventures in, in missing the point uh, when it comes to thinking about what is really at the heart of worship. And what is at the heart of worship is love for God and love for neighbor. Love for God and love for our brethren in Christ. You know, when the Lord Jesus engaged the Samaritan woman at the well, there in John chapter 4, uh, he describes what true worship looks like. And he describes what a true worshiper looks like. When he says that the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Worshiping the Father truthfully, on his terms, According to his revealed will, uh, worship that is motivated, that is grounded in and motivated by sound doctrine. But worship that is spirit-filled and spirit-led. You know, in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, when Paul mentions the, the fruit of the Spirit, one of those at the top of the list is joy. So if we are worshipers, who are seeking to worship God as he has called us to worship him in spirit and in truth. And the spirit is leading our worship and one of the demonstrable proofs that the spirit is in our presence is joy, one of the fruits of the spirit. And why is it that so very often our worship, and this is no commentary on what we've enjoyed this morning, and I'm speaking generally, that our, our, our worship is rather rather apathetic, uh, rather formal. We, we're, we're going through the motions. We have a liturgy. We have a bulletin. We're, we're
we're sticking to it, and, and we're, we're hitting all our marks, and we're, and we're, we're honoring the clock, we're on time, that's a successful service. <laughs> Smile and pat each other on the back, turn off the lights and close the door, and another Lord's Day under our belts. But if you well know, for I know you are a well-taught congregation, God demands more than that from us. He demands more than mere formalism. Uh, in fact, Scripture declares that he rejects mere formalism. Uh, he despises it. He would rather that we not pretend to worship, uh, not engage in, in mere formalism. Don't even, don't even start if that's where we're going to end up. So I want us to look at a passage of Scripture this morning, very familiar uh, to all of us, I trust. Uh, one of the best loved psalms in the entire Psalter, uh, Psalm 100. And Psalm 100 really um, emphasizes this point of, of joy in worship. Uh, in fact, as we'll see this morning in, in, in looking at this passage, uh, it is one of the requisite elements, it's one of the requisite heart attitudes for those who would seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn to Psalm 100 and follow along as I read the entirety of uh, this short psalm, just five verses. It begins in a very familiar way, with very familiar words. Make a joyful noise to the Lord gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his courts with thanksgiving. Excuse me, enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. What do we have before us in this psalm? And this psalm is, is simply a, a series of exhortations to worship interlaced with what I might call theological motivators. What theological realities are designed to prompt God's people to worship? And let's begin with... Uh, the first imperative, the first command to worship there in verse 1. I read there's seven, it's very interesting, there's seven uh, imperatives, seven exhortations to worship in this short psalm. Think about it, you've got five verses here. And in these five verses you have seven commands to worship. Eight if you uh, consider uh, the imperative of doing double duty uh, in verse 4. Eight commands to worship. You think worship is important to God? Yes, it is. And, and so the first obvious practical implication of the way this psalm is designed is if worship is important to God, it should be important to us. And I appreciate the way that this congregation seems to be very intentional and very purposeful in its approach to worship. We're, we're, we're not engaged in sort of slipshod, haphazard, haphazard enterprise here this morning. The thought has gone into this gathering. Uh, and 
And that is indeed faithful to the spirit of Scripture and honoring to God. But note this first imperative here with me. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Now, the Baptist in me, I grew up Southern Baptist, and the Lord has greatly used the Southern Baptist Convention to expand Christ's kingdom. So I don't want to come across as being an opponent of Southern Baptists. Most of my family, in fact, remain Southern Baptists. They scratch their heads when they look at me and wonder, where did we go wrong? Where did this Presbyterian come from? But the Baptist in me is compelled to, to point out the fact that we're commanded to make a noise in worshiping God. Now, obviously, it's going to be quite a noise because all the earth is commanded to engage in this act of worship. So if uh, all the earth, every tribe, tongue, people, nation, uh, if they're gathered together and engaged in unison in the worship of God, obviously, it's going to be quite a grand display, and the volume will be turned up indeed. But notice here that, that there, there's a certain jubilation. Uh, there is a, a, a certain exuberance that is expected in the worship of God. It's not something meek and, and, and timid and staid, sort of half-hearted.
homage cry that goes up to him, honoring him as president, honoring his office. That's the idea here. Uh, it's not noisy. It's not chaotic. There is indeed order here. You have people joined together, uh, co-laboring to offer this worship to God. This is a corporate act. One of my concerns with much of what goes on, goes on in charismatic circles, and uh, when I look at the way these charismatic circles have influenced Baptists and even Presbyterians, uh, there's this idea that, that worship is best when I'm, I'm sort of doing it on my own, doing my own thing. I'm doing my thing, you're doing your thing, uh, we're, we're following our hearts, uh, we're not uh, bowing to the dictates of anyone else. So we have a, a congregation gathered, but every member of the congregation is sort of doing his or her own thing. That's not what Scripture envisions. In fact, it's quite contrary to worship that's conducted according to 1 Corinthians 14, decently and in order. But we are, we are called to, to enter into God's worship with joy, with exuberance, and think about how this would impact the community around us, those who might visit our worship services on a given Sunday, to see us actually joyfully engaged in the worship of our God. Something that's genuine and sincere, not, not a mere performance piece, not dead formalism, not going through the motions, but from the heart, offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving and joy. Imagine the impact that would make by God's grace through the empowerment of His Holy Spirit upon a watching world. The second imperative to worship, the second command to worship here in verse 2, roughly parallels the first one. Serve the Lord with gladness. What we're doing here is service. It, it, it is a liturgy. Uh, we are serving the Lord. We are laboring before the Lord. Uh, and like a, a workman who has to give an account, we want to be judged worthy. We want to be judged uh, faithful and obedient. We want to, to receive that well done by good and faithful servant from our Lord. So again, we, we, we enter into this activity not apathetically, not mindlessly, not carelessly, but because we are serving the Lord as we assemble together as His people uh, on the Lord's Day, then we're going to seek to do it faithfully, we're going to seek to do it biblically, uh, we're going to seek to do it sincerely and authentically. I, I, like, I like the adjective organic when I think about worship. You know, organic is a, is, a, is a buzzword in our day. Everyone wants to eat organic. Uh, I can't afford to eat organic. I'd like to. So you can uh, afford to be organic, and uh, we all know the health benefits that supposedly uh, are gained by pursuing uh, that approach to nutrition. Think about organic worship, uh, worship that, that arises from the body of Christ and organism, uh, doing what comes naturally to her because she has been transformed by the washing Generated work of the Spirit of God. Uh, 
Worship means that it's sincere, that it's true, that it's organic, that it's authentic. Uh, it is indeed a service to God. And again, as I labored to, to point out this morning, uh, it's one of the missing marks in our efforts to, to reach out with the gospel uh, and to impact the community where uh, God uh, has placed us as respective local churches. Uh, really, when I think about evangelism programs, I don't like to use the word program. I think the, the, the best evangelism program envisioned within Scripture is the church being the church. The church living authentically and organically and faithfully with one another before her King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, a church like that will set the community on its ear. Maybe on fire, in fact. We'll call the serve Lord and serve Him with gladness. Are our worship services marked gratitude? Do we have a reason to be thankful? To be glad. Yes. We of all people have a reason to be glad. Have a reason to have smiles on our faces when we assemble with one another before the Lord in worship. We are trophies of His grace. We are, we are beneficiaries of every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that's not enough to lift your heart and fill it with gladness. You don't understand the gospel. You don't understand your position in Christ. Or maybe you don't know the Lord's Savior. I don't mean to say that in a, in, a, in a condemning way or in a judgmental way, but it is a fact that those of us who have been who have an interest in the cross of Christ and we, we know that we have been born again, uh, gladness, gratitude, joy naturally flows from heart in possession, that kind of knowledge. In verse 3, we encounter the first of uh, these motivating realities. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. Why are we to worship God? Well, we are to worship God because we know He is the Lord. Because we know He is God, and as such, He is worthy of worship. If, if He is the Lord, the living and true God, then no other response is appropriate other than worship. In fact, this, uh, the, the phrase with which this, uh, the, the first part of verse 3 ends, uh, know the Lord, He is God. Uh, this statement, He is God, carries with three implications. Uh, first of all, that he is, that he exists. Secondly, that he alone is God. And then thirdly, it is only right for us to take him as our God. Now, to deny the first is to be guilty of atheism. To deny that he exists is to, of course, venture into atheism. To deny the second is to venture into polytheism. He is not alone God, perhaps there are other gods. Um, and thirdly, to, to, to not embrace him as God, to not take him as our God, in a, in a genuine way, is to run the risk of practical atheism. 
think that's the greatest danger, the greatest peril afoot in our day. Practical atheism. Yes, I, I'm, I'm confessional orthodox. You know, I, I, can, I can recite the Westminster Confession of Faith, the, uh, the, the article on uh, of God and of the Holy Spirit. I know all the correct catechism questions and answers pertaining to God, his person, his identity, his work. But I live as if none of those things are true. I live as if uh, another reality dominates. That's practical atheism. I set myself up as God. And follow the, the dictates of my own heart, my own will. It's practical atheism. I fear the church is filled with practical atheists. May God send a great revival to uh, uh, rescue us from that spiritual malady. What prompts my heart to worship? I know that the Lord, He is God. Notice how I got to know something to worship God. Worship is not merely a matter of the emotions. Worship is not a heart running wild. Uh, worship is based on truth. Worship is biblical. Worship is faithful. It's based on truth. I've got to know something. My heart cannot rejoice in what my head does not understand. And so a congregation that's going to worship rightly is going to be well-fed biblically. Nourished on sound doctrine. And I'm more than a little afraid when I hear Christians talk about, well, you know, I used to go to this church, but you know, there's just too much heavy preaching there. There's too much doctrine. I, I you know, I want to I want a worship experience. You know, like responding, friend, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't understand what you're asking for. A true worship experience. Of scripture can only happen when you're being fed the, the pure milk and the, and, and the strong meat of God's word. Know the Lord, He is God, it is He who made us, and we are His. We belong to Him. And so it's only right that we worship Him. But again, we don't offer this worship begrudgingly or, or, or under coercion. We're grateful to be His. Being His is not an imposition, is it? Belonging to the living and true God, being one of His blood-bought, spirit-filled children, is no punishment. It is no imposition. It is no burden for us to bear with resignation. For a brother, Rather, He motivates us offer this worship that is joyful and glad. When we come into his presence with singing, I overlooked that imperative back at the end of verse 2. Here's one of the um, places within the scripture where we see singing some praise as an ordinance of worship. As something that's not just suggested, but commanded. And, and as a as a fit and proper expression of the kind of joy and gratitude that we're talking about here this morning. James will ask, is anyone cheerful? Is anyone merry? Let them sing songs. So this is not merely an Old Testament perspective or an Old Testament commandment. It is mirrored in the New Testament as well. A 
And so singing is right and proper for us as the people of God. Uh, it is a, a, an ordinance of worship. It is, it is commanded. And we're not talking about a talent show. This isn't, this isn't uh, what we should be concerned with uh, how, how well we sing, how well we should try to sing as well as we can. It's good that congregation are trained to sing, but we're not all born with opera grade singing voices. It's not, again, that's not the primary point. Singing unpacks our hearts. Singing gives expression what is, is filling our spirits. So it's a worship release valve for the joy and the happiness that we feel today. Back to verse 3. It is he who made us and we are his, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. He has claimed us as his own through Christ. He has called us. And indeed we have the image of God the Father here at the end of verse 3 as a shepherd. Kind of care the shepherd shows the sheep, God the Father shows us. We have a caring Heavenly Father who invites us to worship Him. How awesome that God created the universe, wants to enjoy communion with me and you this morning. The God who by His sovereign heart holds the stars in place. Keeps the planets within their courses, maintains the atmosphere on, on this planet we inhabit, sustains his creation 24 7, and yet at the same time condescends to seek communion with you. As we enter into a time of observing the Lord's table later on this morning, keep that thought in mind. This, this is no second rate God, your communion. This is no secondary being. This is the living of the true God who created and sustains all that is. Before whom cherubim and seraphim and, and ranks and ranks of angels bow down and offer worship continually. And he wants to spend time with me. Continually amazes me. Because sometimes I don't even want to spend time with me.
where we gather in a designated place, where we enter into this course, we cannot be fully fed, well-formed, biblically faithful Christians if we forsake the assembly. Hebrews makes that clear. Psalm 100 emphasizes that as well. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, for that's his name. We don't offer up the blood of those animals. We don't offer animal sacrifices in the new covenant administration of the covenant of grace. What we do offer is our whole being. We offer ourselves up as living sacrifices. We offer up a praise offerings and thank offerings. Remember that was always the perspective of Scripture. Go back into the Old Testament. Their God says, you know, I, I don't drink the blood of bulls. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I own a cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need you to feed me. Remember what I want from you is a sincere heart sacrifice. So we're to give thanks to Him. We assemble together here to be offering up the sacrifice of thanks, of gratitude for all that He's done for us in Christ Jesus. All that He's given us. Again, According to Ephesians 1 and verse 3, we are in possession of every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Contemplate that and see if that doesn't motivate you to greater depths of worship. There's nothing that has been withheld from us in the cross. And then again, another reality intended to to prime our worship home, to motivate us in worship. In verse 5, we have the character of God on display. For the Lord is good. We worship a good God. We don't worship a, a malevolent God like uh, the, the gods of the, the ancient Greek and Roman pantheon, Zeus, sitting on top of Mount Olympus, ready to hurl a lightning bolt to you if you uh, upset him, if you disobeyed one of his arbitrary at times, ridiculous commands. We only worship the living and the true God who is the good God. He is the embodiment of all benevolence. He intends for our best in Christ Jesus. God is working all things together for our good, Paul tells us in Romans 8.28. God wants what is good for you. When he commands you to do something, when he commands you to worship him, as we're considering here in Psalm 100, it is for your good. When I don't worship the way Psalm 100 commands me to worship, I'm doing injury to myself spiritually. I'm missing something that I desperately need. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations, both here in verse 5, um, well, really throughout this psalm, as I look at it, we have the covenant name of God repeated here. Uh, Yahweh, Jehovah, God's covenant name spelled in, in all caps in most of our translations. Reminding us that this God who is the creator of heaven and earth is one who has entered into covenant with us through Christ Jesus, who has pledged himself to our salvation. 
who has decreed your redemption if you have an interest in the cross of Christ. And he who began a good work in you, Paul reminds us, will not abandon it, but will remain faithful to it until the day of Christ Jesus. When I am faithless, he is faithful. And my faithlessness does not nullify the faithfulness, the goodness, the consistency of God. I am the Lord. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. If he were less than a good God, if he were less than a faithful God, if his steadfast love did not endure forever, then perhaps my salvation, your salvation, would be at risk. The continuity of the church of Jesus Christ might be at risk. But because we serve such a God, because we know such a God, then we have confidence to enter into a place like this, to assemble together name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to lift up prayer, to lift up praise and to do so from a disposition of joy and gladness. Now, quickly in closing, I know I transgressed a clock here. I want to make a quick application here. I think what we, what we consider here in Psalm 100 is particularly appropriate for three classes of people. The first class would be those who are disinclined to worship God, period. The atheist, the agnostic, no interest in worshiping God, uh, living a life of complete self-absorption, uh, complete self-interest. Uh, they are, they have in fact set themselves up as God. Scripture is very clear. Every knee shall bow one day, every tongue shall confess. It is best for us, from eternity's perspective, to do so now and to do so willingly, rather than one day to do so coerced, to do so under judgment, under condemnation. Paul makes that very clear in Philippians chapter 2, that because of Christ's faithfulness, his condescension in becoming man, taking upon himself the form of a servant, and living a life of and active obedience of dying on the cross, securing our salvation. God has highly exalted him and given him a name above all names. And at that name, the name has been given to Jesus, the name is above all men. I think the name there is, is the Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You are Lord, you are Yahweh, you are the sovereign God of the universe. Everything you said about yourself is true. You are vindicated by saint and sinner, elect and reprobate alike. For those who are disinclined, uninterested in worshiping God, I offer that biblical note of caution. The second category of individual might be one that thinks that worship is rather easy. It's easy to worship God. Um, I love worshiping. It's not a hard thing. It's not a difficult thing at all. Um, I want to be careful in, in how, I, how I phrase this.
But if you think that the worship that is described in Psalm 100 is easy, perhaps you have not given close consideration to what's actually being said here. There are Lord's Day mornings when, because of various distractions from the week past, Asks, uh, because of burdens in the week to come, I am completely out of frame when it comes to worshiping God. I am anything but joyful. I am anything but glad. I'm lucky to just assemble. Amen. <laughs> Think about it this way. What is commanded of us? And we do have commandments here. What is commanded of us? Is, is nothing short of sincere, wholehearted worship. I can't conjure up joy. I can't conjure up gladness on command. I can't flip a switch and become joyful. I can't press a button and be glad and, and, and do more than, than just paint a smile and, and, and do the emotions. The bar here is set. Really high, folks. But lest we, lest we despair at uh, how high the bar is set, and, and when our, our preacher of frailty settles in upon us and think, well, this is just not even worth trying, let's be reminded of the fact that grace supplies. Yes, the bar is set on. But we have a God who again condescends to us in grace, comes to us with gentleness and goodness, who has made us, made me, accepted where? In the beloved. Ephesians chapter 1. And Ephesians chapter 1 is just a touchstone when it comes to uh, grace encouragements. I have been made accepted in the beloved. So yes, I am a creature, feeble and frail. Yes, I have feet of clay. And, and yes, there are Lord's days when my best efforts at worship fall pitifully short of the mark. But because of who I am in Christ, I need not fear rejection. Because of who I am in Christ, because of who you are in Christ, your worship is more precious to God the Father uh, than that of cherubim and seraphim and angels. Without Think about it. And then the third category of individuals to which this passage is particularly appropriate would be those those who are conscious of their own sinfulness. They have been smitten by the law. They know themselves to be sinners. Uh, they know the plague of their own hearts. They struggle daily with indwelling sin. And they feel themselves to be failures more often than successes when it comes to obedience. So they seem to feel unworthy to worship the, the, the great God who issues this invitation. It's for all but me. Lord 
Jesus Christ did not come to save, did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those who were well have no need of a physician. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is made up of those who were formerly the off-scouring of the world. But we have been collected through the effectual call of the Spirit of God. We have been called, we have been collected, we have been redeemed, we have been washed, we have been restored, we have been renewed. And we have been made kings and priests in the service of our God. And in Christ Jesus, our worship is more than acceptable. So for those of us here this morning who because of our own sense of sinfulness, of, of unworthiness, hesitate to draw near, to accept the awesome invitation to worship. Scripture has words of, of grace and encouragement for you. I want to conclude with one of those passages of encouragement. Turn in your Old Testament to the book of Isaiah. Very close to where you are in the Psalms. Isaiah 55. And the Beatitudes begin with the declaration, excuse me, the declaration, blessed are the poor in spirit. And Isaiah 55 addresses those who are poor in spirit. Isaiah 55 verse 1 reads, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. The God of all grace invites us to come. Those of us who are thirsty, those of us who are hungry, those of us who are hurried and harried and frazzled. And frustrated, come. Find that which truly satisfies. Find that which edifies, which builds up, which strengthens and nourishes. Come, sit down at God's rich banquet table. His gracious banquet table, luxuriously appointed. Come, find the best things, the good things. Was a table of worship. Come and worship me. Commune with me. Enjoy fellowship with me. I've made all the provision necessary in Christ Jesus for you to enjoy entry and full acceptance and to find nothing but blessing at that table. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.